This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for March 1st, 2024. I'm Sarah Presby. First up this week, a new approach to slowing climate change, dehydrating the stratosphere. Staff writer Paul Vusin joins me to discuss the pros and cons of this geoengineering technique. Next on the show, science robotics editor Amos Matsiko is here to give us a rundown of papers and a special series on magnetic robots in medicine. We also chat about how close old science fiction books came to predicting modern medical robots. Solar geoengineering. This is getting the sun to stop heating up the earth quite so much at a planetary scale has been talked about for decades. And often the theorized interventions for solar geoengineering involve adding, you know, little particulates or different things to the atmosphere to reflect away some of the sunlight that's coming in. Staff writer Paul Vusen joins us to talk about a different approach to slow climate change through solar geoengineering, in this case, by dehydrating the stratosphere. Hi, Paul. Hello. Hi. So our stratosphere is a little too well hydrated right now? I mean, it's not very well hydrated ever. <laughs> uh, it's way up there and water tends to fall down and onto our heads as rain and make clouds. Not a lot gets up there, but... When water does get up there, it acts as this kind of powerful greenhouse gas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're in the troposphere. That's where we live and all our weather is. And the stratosphere is this layer above that where water doesn't really have much of a job. And when it does get up there, it starts to contribute to warming. Yeah. So you know, once you get up past this kind of, it's called the tropopause, the top of the, the troposphere where you cross over. So there's a few definitions for it, but it's really this point where as you're going up, you know, it gets colder and colder and colder, and then suddenly it starts getting warmer and warmer and warmer again, and you've just crossed the tropopause when you, that happens. And when stuff gets up there, it kind of stays, especially if it start, gets up there in the tropics, it stays around up there for years sometimes if it's light enough. When stuff gets up there, like from the bushfires in Australia a few years right. ago, or that eruption of the, the volcano and Hunga Tonga can have these years-long impact. So perhaps affecting how much water is in there could have years-long impact on how much heating or warming the stratosphere is contributing. Yeah. This is in the draft that I saw. You do say that there's some speculation about how much percent contribution to warming there is from this water up there. Do you want to mention that? It's really uncertain 
what's going on <laughs> with water vapor in this transfer. You know, there are not a lot of measurements. We just don't get up there that much. We have satellites, but they're not perfectly measuring this. The satellites tend to see that there hasn't been a change in the amount over the past few decades, but there's been some research basically from this one site in Colorado run by NOAA where they monitor it, that it seems like water vapor increased and then may have boosted the warming in the late 1990s by a bit. That percentage is really uncertain. There was a paper in Science about that 14 years ago, but you know, I don't know if that's kind of the end all be all on how much it caused, but the mechanism there is clear, like water vapor catches the infrared heat coming off the planet and then gets a little bit warmer and shoots the heat back down. We have a mechanism for how it could contribute to warming. So let's talk about the mechanism for how we would dehydrate the stratosphere. For decades, researchers have known that there's only a few spots in the planet where water vapor crosses over, barring big volcanic eruptions, like on a regular basis. And the primary one is this area in the Western Pacific, roughly the size of Australia, where these huge towers of convection is just super hot. So you got lots of air rising. And even though that's the highest point for where the stratosphere starts, because it's higher up at the tropics, there's just enough energy to kind of loft air up into the stratosphere. And there's lots of water vapor there. Most of that does fall out, but still you can reach this point to right before you cross over into the stratosphere that water vapor can be well over 100% relative humidity. Wow. When you're over 100% relative humidity, usually you can get clouds. But if you don't have any like little bits of junk in there to start like nucleate the clouds to like make the clouds happen, maybe it all rained out or there's just none of these seeds exist, then it doesn't fall out and it crosses over to the stratosphere. Are there people living underneath these giant towering convection areas? No, no. This is east of the Philippines over the ocean. The idea here then is to say, well, let's provide some seeds. Let's, you know, shake that rain out before it crosses into the stratosphere. Yeah. So I mean, this is not going to be the biggest climate impact. Let's say that first. This is not on the scale of these reflecting the light to drastically cool things. It's like a tangible one. But what's remarkable is kind of a bang for your buck type of proposition that they, you know, this is kind of a back of the envelope type laying out the idea. So no, this is. Okay totally firm, but I will not go out and do it tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is like, well, you couldn't, but the amount of material you might not need. So it's only 1% of these air parcels hold kind of 50% of the potential water rained out. So only 1% of this Australia sized region has most of the excess water. So potentially you could go with as little as like two kilograms of cloud seed per week and cause a big tangible impact in the amount of water vapor going to the stratosphere. So the amount a drone could lift up or a, a balloon, you don't have to fly huge aircraft campaigns necessarily. And then wipe out your climate <laughs> benefit, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you could take a drone or balloon and fly this small amount of material up weekly to seed clouds, rain this out, and then dehydrate the stratosphere. That's not taking water that's already up there out. It's just slowing down how much gets up there. Yeah. It all comes out eventually. Yeah. If you just stop it before it gets up there, you're mm -hmm. dehydrating the natural cycle of this. So we keep saying, you know, it's not a huge impact. It's not going to be nuclear winter. <laughs> so like, is there any kind of comparison that we could make about how large of an impact this would have on climate change? 
our editors were just pressing me on that yeah. revisions in the story. <laughs> and it, you know, it's, it's hard to say to fix an exact figure on this in an optimistic scenario. Shuka was the lead researcher said, you know, it could be 0.1 watts per meter square <laughs> radiated force. And so you understand it that, right? means nothing to me. Yes. Thank but you. you could say roughly that methane added by humanity, that's like maybe 10% of that but cooling versus warming, right? So, you know, it it's not totally insignificant. That sounds interesting, yeah. Another way of putting it, I think, could be a few hundredths of a degree Celsius, which makes it sound smaller, but it's global. Yeah, it's a big... <laughs> but it is global. We're doing something global with something that's that's not exactly a big lift. Okay, so we have the mechanism and potential impact, but would there be any local effects or any concerns about what happens to these seeds? once they are rained out of the sky? Mm -hmm. So the big concern here, and as the authors acknowledge, you know, there's some of the kind of top people in this field, is that if these cloud seeds, say they fail to make the clouds there, or they get redistributed and form clouds that don't go into the stratosphere, but instead make these cirrus, these thin, wispy clouds high up in the troposphere. So clear sky, and then these seeds accidentally get there and create clouds these cirrus clouds warm the planet. They are essentially water vapor. They don't reflect much light. So on kind of the net, they cause warming. So you could, if you didn't do this right, accidentally warm the planet instead of cool it. Oh, <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, it's a negative, it might like zero out whatever effort you're doing here. You just can't tell. But the, their point is that you wouldn't create a lot of these because you're doing this in such a small area. So you're having a global impact with water vapor in the stratosphere, but it would be a very local impact likely. But, you know, it's as they say, this is just the start and they need to study this better. Yeah. You mentioned in your story that geoengineering is kind of getting a new hearing among scientists and policymakers. You know, what are some of the drivers of that? I think the biggest driver is for a long time, there's been a slippery slope argument of we stop doing this and then we'll lose all motivation to curb emissions. I don't know if that's been the case. Uh, I mean, we haven't been curbing emissions anyway, yeah. to the degree we are to, you know, some degree, of course. But, you know, things have just been warming so much and getting CO2 out of the atmosphere, you know, the economics of that still need to get way better. So there've been calls for a decade by the National Academies, other places that we need to research this, not, you know, deploy it necessarily, but just to research it, get all the ideas and suss it out a bit more if this ever needs to be done. And I think more people are opening up to that idea of the research, if not, you know, no one, I think, is champing at the bit to actually deploy this. Yeah, there was a piece in science, I think it was probably last year, this was in the commentary section, it was a policy forum, basically saying, we need to figure out what could work and what could do damage to make sure that when we run out of options, we have an option that is least harmful. Yeah. So we can't just say, oh, well, this is how scientists destroy the planet. We shouldn't even look at it, right? We have to, we have to look and see. This paper was out of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and they've been tiptoeing into this realm a bit more. You know, you have just lots more of credible scientists who are, are willing to explore this. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. And, and is a policy piece of it also moving forward? So looking at how humanity as a whole could come to an agreement or who gets a say in what gets done? Yeah, I mean, when I was talking with one of the outside researchers for this, they're saying how the EU is now sponsoring research into governance of solar and geoengineering. And we just had last week Switzerland call on the United Nations to think about this more. 
I don't know that we're out there on consensus that there's been a lot of talk about how do you do governance? That's the e kind of easy thing to do in theory, right? But <laughs> it's not to solve because, you know, you one nation can just go do this, like take two kilograms and spew it up there. But that's been talked about a lot. All right, Paul, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Paul Vusin is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the news article and a related Science Advances paper at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with Science Robotics editor Amos Matsiko about merging robotics and medicine. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Last month, Science Robotics published a series of articles focused on medicine and robots. The journal's editor, Amos Matsuko, is here to talk about it. Hi, Amos. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's start with basics. I read at least the titles of everything that comes through robotics. I, I tend to keep an eye on it. There's interesting video in there. It's very cool topics we cover on the podcast. And I have to kind of ask as a basic principle, what is a robot? You know, is it a little piece of folding metal that can spring around in response <laughs> to temperature change? Is it a tiny helix inside the human body that spins in response to magnets? Is it an arm that has a job? Or is it a blubbery, rubbery thing that moves around because of air pressure? I mean, these all of these things I've seen written about in science robotics. What's the common theme and what makes them robots? It could really be all of the above that you mentioned. So there are various definitions of a robot, but broadly speaking, a robot is a system that is capable of carrying out a specific complex task or a series of tasks through either direct control from an operator or through pre-programmed actions or even autonomously with the aid of intelligent control systems so that the robot can interact with its environment. Robots should really be able to sense the environment, make some sort of decision, and take appropriate action. So a lot of what I've described is researchers pulling together pieces that could eventually make something like what you're describing. So exactly how they move or how they respond or how they sense. All that stuff needs to be tried out in pieces and then put together into a formally recognizable robot. Yeah, exactly. I think many years ago, and still even today in science fiction, robots were only seen as being anthropomorphic, meaning that they need to have physical characteristics similar to a human. So we're talking arms, legs, a head, and so on. But now there's a diverse range of robots in many aspects of life, from the factory floor on assembly lines 
to the hospital for all sorts of medical complications. And even in our homes, I know quite a few people today that have a Roomba robotic vacuum cleaner, and it's one of the most widely used consumer robots. And they're really quite intelligent. You know, they can create a map of a room. They can plan their navigation as they vacuum the floor. And some can even change the vacuuming settings depending on whether they're moving on a wooden floor versus whether they're on a carpet. One of my favorite things that the journal does is this analysis of sci-fi and robotics along all these different themes. So, for example, how did sci-fi do at predicting medicine robots or medical robots? And we're going to we're going to get to that at the very end here. But I do think we should start with why is now a good time to focus on this intersection of human health and robots? What's going on in the field that made it ripe for this discussion? This is one of the key areas of science robotics due to the broad societal implications. Recently, there have been a number of advances that have led to the development of more capable robots, which have ultimately opened up new opportunities for robots in many applications in the clinic. In particular, advances in areas like computer science, specifically with regards to control and autonomy, and also advances in material science. There are now more possibilities of deploying robots in the medical arena than ever before. So this special issue that we're publishing in February will focus on studies that harness magnetism in medical robotics in new and unique ways as well. Should we take a little dive into history before we go into the paper? So when I think about robots in medicine, I think I think about robotic surgery. Is that kind of the one of the main contributions or what are some of the other ways that robots have participated in medicine in the past? Robots have been used in, in the clinic for quite some time. So for diagnosis, for example, there are robots which are used now for triaging or pre-screening patients, similar to how a general practitioner can ask a series of yes-no questions in order to narrow down to a possible medical condition. There are now robots which can do these quite autonomously and cleverly. There are also robots which can carry out dermatological scans, say for diagnosis of skin cancers. There are also several robots which have been developed to aid surgeons to plan procedures. For example, there are research groups which are working on developing soft robotic models of the heart based on actual patient data. So there are several tools which can be used in the preoperative stage of care, but also, as you said, robotic surgery, perioperative care. This is also quite important in the robotic space. You probably heard of the Da Vinci robot. It's one of the most widely used robotic devices in the clinic today. It's got a number of articulating arms which are inserted into the patient's body. And the surgeon can control these robotic arms. The surgeon can also visualize the tissue with stereoscopic cameras. There are also some other robots for rehabilitation. And the most common one is an exoskeleton suit, and it can be used to provide assistance to patients with motor disorders. For instance, patients who are recovering from stroke. There have been studies which have showed that exoskeleton suits can actually enhance their recovery and improve their gait and balance just after a couple of weeks of training with exoskeleton suits. Robots have been used quite broadly. Really? And end-to-end? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're going to talk about today is a little bit more of a slice of it. So this is robots controlled with magnetics. One of them I looked at, and this is something that always gets me when I'm looking for videos to like put on our various channels, TikTok, Instagram, whatever, is Robots that swim around inside the body. They're tiny and they can get places that maybe you wouldn't normally be able to get. So, you know, what's going on in the space? What do, what do we have in the journal this month about that? Yeah, so uh, you're probably talking of micro-robots. These, as the name suggests, are micron-sized. One of the studies by Jiang Feng Zhang and colleagues at Huazhong University of, of Science and Technology 
They focused on treating cerebral aneurysms using soft magnetic microfiber bots. An aneurysm is essentially a bulge in a blood vessel due to weakness in the vessel walls. And if these aneurysms burst, they can cause some really serious problems. And currently in the clinic, they can be treated by inserting platinum coils to seal the aneurysm. But there are also other conditions which may require a blood vessel to be blocked entirely, such as in a procedure called tumor embolization. Right, so you cut off the blood supply to the tumor so that it's, it's starved and the, the cells start to die. Exactly. And so the authors in this study developed an approach which delivers these microfiber bots minimally invasively using magnetic fields. So rather than using a catheter, which is inserted into blood vessel. It's a very long thing, right? It just keeps going and going. It stays connected and it gets where it needs to go. Exactly. Yeah. So rather than doing that, why not use magnetic fields, which doesn't necessarily need direct control of the microfiber bot itself? That was one approach that used micro robots. There was also another study which was done by Sylvan Martel and colleagues in Canada. They essentially focused on improving the delivery efficiency of magnetic robots to target tissue. Hmm. So this is more about not necessarily the job they're going to do when they get there, but how to get them there in hard to reach places that maybe a catheter couldn't go or it's deeper in the body where it's harder to steer things. Exactly. Microrobots are usually administered by basically injecting them into the blood vessels and the surgeon can use a magnetic field to control their motility. But because they're very tiny, there are issues with regards to the effects of gravity and also blood flow, which can affect their efficiency in reaching these targets. And so the authors developed an algorithm which can determine the optimal patient position or orientation on an operating table that would essentially allow gravity to aid navigation of the micro robots. Do they keep moving the person as the robot moves through them? Not necessarily move the person in real time, but the algorithm can determine the optimal position that would take advantage of gravity so that these micro robots can reach their targets quite effectively. And they also did some studies in vivo to target the liver, and they showed that just by repositioning the animal. This was pigs. They could increase the efficiency from 47% to well over 86%. Wow. This is really quite impressive. And that's a hard to reach spot. It's very deep in there. It's very hard to get a field in there that you need that's not going to hurt you or the robot. So that's really amazing. Exactly. If we're talking of drug-loaded micro-robots, this is really key that you get to the desired location because you don't want to have the drug suddenly being eluted in the wrong location. So this is quite an important study in something as simple as the position of the patient having a really huge impact. I could imagine a robot turning a person very smoothly <laughs> as the micro robots are inside the person. Yeah. Just like, oh my goodness, this, this is very sci-fi. All right, so I think there's a few more papers we should touch on before we go to sci-fi. So let's talk about one more paper in the special section and then we'll let people find the rest on their own. What else should we touch on? Another study in the issue by Bradley Nelson and colleagues at ETH in Zurich, they featured a very flexible and dexterous continuum magnetic robot. And the aim of this study was essentially to reach millimeter-sized vessels in the brain. So I talked earlier about stroke and brain aneurysms, and these are really serious conditions. And each minute in delay in reaching specialist care can have really big consequences in terms of severe physical and neurological disability, and ultimately even cause death. There's actually a phrase called time is brain, meaning that time is really critical in, in order to save brain tissue. Yeah, absolutely. In this study, the authors utilized a number of techniques to improve access to the target tissue. 
with something called the Continuum robot. This robot had a number of unique features. So first of all, on the outer surface of the robot, it had helical protrusions. Once it's deployed into the blood vessels, it uses rotation, kind of like a corkscrew, in order to enable forward motion. And secondly, the authors also used an articulating magnetic tip, meaning that it can generate greater bending angles. So it can go around corners. But not just any corners, but very sharp corners. Right, like branching blood vessels, like it can exactly. go back through... A a very angled section. And that's super important for getting up into the tiny vessels in the brain where some of this Indeed. danger is. Oh, wow. Okay, so there's more to read. Please do check it out. We're going to link from the episode page. Now, I do have a question in here about the future. Like, what are some of the areas for growth that people are going to be looking at maybe five, 10 years from now in you know robotics and medicine? Material science is going to be quite important, making materials that have more capabilities, but also materials that are safer to be used in the human patient. Also, computer science and uh, artificial intelligence are going to play a really big role in making medical robots more capable. For example, there are a couple of studies that were published recently. One was on an autonomous system for anastomosis of the uh, intestines. It was a system that was capable of and stitching intestinal tissue autonomously. So if you got a hole in your intestine, the system can then repair it from inside? Exactly, but it can also be used to aid a surgeon because suturing is not quite as challenging as some other procedures within surgery. So if you can develop a system that can autonomously suture at the end of a procedure, then that would certainly help with the entire operation. Okay, so I don't want to miss talking about sci-fi. <laughs> This is always, I love it. Of course, I'm thinking as we're talking about Prometheus, that movie where there's a surgery robot, it's like one of the aliens movie, mm -hmm. which is just ridiculous. I don't, <laughs> I don't even think it deserves any judgment from us. It's just a fun movie. But do you feel like, has sci-fi been predictive of the direction of robotics and medicine? Not just medicine, but technology as a whole. I think sci-fi and technology have been intertwined for quite some time. And there are now so many cases where sci-fi inspires technology and vice versa. There was a novel or short story called Microhunts by an author called Boris Stepanovich Zitkov. And this featured an inventor who creates a pair of micro-sized mechanical hands, which he uses for robotic surgery and tumors. And these uh, micro hands were controlled remotely by gloves, which have haptic feedback. And the inventor uses uh, microscopic glasses to visualize the micro hands. That is so many things that people are trying to do right now. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's quite similar to what's happening today. And that book is like 100 years old, maybe a little bit less. It was published in 1930, so just slightly less than 100 years. And one of the key things with the book is that it highlights some really big challenges that still need to be addressed today in order to make these micro robots or medical robots applicable in the clinic. As you scale down in size, there are many issues in terms of how do you navigate through tissue? How do you visualize tissue? We're good at driving cars. Exactly. And so we kind of have all these analogs that we can build into computers for driving cars, but we're not really good at driving little tiny, you know, paper clips around. That's a totally different mindset mm -hmm. for the forces involved. And the considerations is super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So science fiction has, has really played a part, um, as I said, inspiring researchers, but also researchers can inspire science fiction alternatively. Do you have a favorite robot out there in the real world, in sci-fi, movies, books? Can you pick a favorite? 
I always gravitate towards medical robots in sci-fi. Okay. <laughs> that's sort of something I'm, I'm passionate about. Yeah. When the movie Ender's Game, mm. it, it actually featured a surgical robot that performed brain surgery to make a human with superpowers, essentially. But what was particularly interesting in that was that this was an actual surgical robot that was developed by researchers in the University of Washington. This was an actual robot that somehow appeared in a sci-fi movie. So that was quite cool. But obviously the robot's purpose is not enhancing humans. Sure, sure, exactly. (laughs) There was also another movie, you may have seen it called Robot and Frank. It's actually a comedy, but it features a companion robot, which was given as a gift from a son to his elderly father who is suddenly developing progressive dementia. Mm. And although the elderly individual was initially against the robot, he subsequently formed a strong friendship with the robot. I think in the future, we're going to have companion robots being deployed in all sorts of populations, not just the elderly, but also children in high schools as well. Yeah, I can see them being quite diverse and... and Just like Megan, right? Exactly. All right, Amos, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really interesting. Thanks for having me. Amos Masiko is the editor for Science Robotics. You can find a link to the works we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. To find us on podcasting apps, search for Science Magazine. Or you can listen on our website, science.org slash podcast. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Megan Tuck at Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music on behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S.org join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.